Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest, Munir Hahad. He is the head of Juniper Threat Labs at Juniper Networks. Munir, thanks for joining the show. Hey, good morning, Ted. It's a pleasure to be with you here today. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to have you here. We were, we were talking earlier about how have we not crossed paths yet? <laughs> we swim in the same circles. <laughs> that, that's just amazing. We should have. We should have. I stopped by so many times the IoT Village. I should have run into you. I know. Well, after this, we will we'll definitely crossing paths again. So I'm really glad to have you here to talk about this idea of threat intelligence, because even people who have been in the field of generally the broader field of cybersecurity for a really long time, they might not necessarily be familiar with it. So let's introduce the 101 version of it. So what is threat intelligence? Threat intelligence kind of comes in multiple flavors. I consume some of it. I produce some of it, but we don't cover everything and I don't consume everything. So some threat intelligence, people would like to see it as part of uh, intelligence reports. You know, they study a case and they'll give you all ins and out about a particular case, the tactics, the perpetrators, the threat actors involved, the victimology potentially. And they'll tell you what techniques have been used and how that's successful that was potentially. And that that's one kind of threat intelligence. And, and there is another kind of threat intelligence, which is more, I would say, machine consumable threat intelligence. And that comes in the forms of indicators of compromise most of the time. And you see that, for example, in a list of IP addresses or bad domain names or even file hashes. Um, that, that's kind of the other kind of threat intelligence. So I would say between these two things, you, you have enough of a wide gamut that depending on your role in an organization, you tend to gravitate towards one or the other. There's a number of companies, as you're probably aware, that produce threat intelligence. And some of them, that's their only business. They produce threat intelligence. And some of them focus on one versus the other. Very few do both together and do them well. So what I'm hearing you describe is that there's maybe two sides of the coin. Some is pre-breach, trying to prevent a breach, and some is post-breach, trying to learn from the breach. Is that a correct breakdown that you just described? To some extent, but you have to remember that for every breach that happens in one place, there is a very large number of organizations that are attempting not to be the victim of a similar breach. So it, it's always together, right? Sometimes it's pre-breach, right? When you're talking about threat intelligence, about threat actors, their modus operandi, the tools that they might be using, uh, some of it comes from history, right? Because they have perpetrated some actions and they have used some of these tools. But some of it comes from darknet research. You're just browsing the darknet and you're finding chatter, communication, 
tools that have been published, offers for services. And you're collecting all of that and you're turning it into an intelligence report. And hopefully the outcome out of that is some actionable things that people can take into account in order to secure better their environment and their network. That's just like one side of the coin of the pre-breach type of threat intelligence. A lot of the work that goes on is, I wouldn't necessarily say post-breach, but when you see a threat actor setting up an infrastructure, you know something is about to happen. And that threat intelligence in the form of consumable IOCs is also very valuable. And as you know, you know, we, we keep talking about APTs and we're uh, we're going after that the high value target and all of that. Let's not forget that the majority of organizations are defending against the day-to-day attacks. These are not APTs. These are not very sophisticated, but they do cause damage. So a lot of the consumable threat intelligence is also valuable towards fending off that 90% of, I would say, noisy attacks that happen day in, day out for most organizations that have some sort of a presence on the internet. Yeah, that's a fascinating observation that you're making because so much of the the hype, the headlines, what we read about or hear about at the security conferences is all about that maybe 10% of the more elegant, sophisticated, dedicated, sustained attacks but I'm hearing you say that some of the, the more common issues are the, the day-to-day lesser sophisticated types of attacks. Yeah, absolutely. Just look at the number of disclosures that companies have to make based on regulations and whatnot. You know, how many, I wouldn't say inconsequential, inconsequential, but relatively low consequence type of breaches. You know, somebody who managed to get onto your network and run crypto miners for two days. That kind of things happens a lot more often than you think. And it's not done by sophisticated threat actors. It's just, you know, people who have become adept at uh, exploiting misconfigurations, especially when it comes to cloud environments or data centers. It's it's relatively easy for that kind of things to happen if you don't raise the bar on uh, on your level of defenses. So... Is there an example that you could think of of something that either you, you've observed recently or the past few years, whatever, that is a good story that shows how an organization has been able to do something as a result of threat intelligence? Like the threat intelligence effort produced something, and then that something caused an action, and that action produced some sort of result. Is there a story you could share? But, you know, Ted, honestly, I don't have a particular story, but I can tell you by looking at telemetry data and dashboards that this kind of stuff happens all the time. Let's look at, for example, any organization, you look at their detection dashboard and they're blocking, for example, log4j attempts of attack. What, What does that really mean? It really means that somebody produced threat intelligence that says this kind of an attack on an application server somewhere is a log4j attack and here's a signature and here's what you do. You create a policy and you block it, right? When you see that actually happening in your network, what does that mean? It means that you just prevented a breach. And based on what? Based on intelligence you got from threat intel, right? So it happens all the time. You don't need any particular story. When you're looking at your dashboard for any security tool that you have, It's the threat intelligence telling you a number of stories day in and day out. I love it. So it seems like a key aspect to this is the sharing of the intelligence, right? One organization is having some threat intelligence effort done. The outcome of that is going to benefit some other organization because, as you said, you know, company A might be victimized, but company B might be trying to not get victimized by the same thing. Can you talk about sharing? How, How does that work? Where are the pitfalls? How can we do it better? Yeah, this is absolutely critical, Ted, and and I'm glad you're bringing up this topic. No matter which security tool you use, no matter which security organization you turn to, 
for, for help, no single one of them can protect you against all the threats that are out there. And they all realize that also. So it's really important to have some sort of a community sharing set of programs going on. And you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that Juniper is part of some of these communities. One in particular I really like, which is the Cyber Threat Alliance. In, in that alliance, you have a number of security organizations that come and share threat intelligence on a real-time basis. So, you know, you have companies like Cisco, Fortinet, Checkpoint, Palo Alto Networks, McAfee, Sophos, they're all in there. And we, we put together a platform that allows us to do real-time threat intelligence sharing. We share probably north of a few millions of indicators on, on a monthly basis, and these are quality indicators. And you can see that all these companies came to that realization that no one of us can defend, defend our customer base just by yourself. You know, for one thing, every company is going to have a number of, of vendors deployed within their own network. So it's not like they're relying on one in particular. But at the same time, we all play slightly different roles. So what's the advantage to an organization like a customer organization to have the best threat intelligence from Juniper when they have another product, which is supposedly defending, let's say, an endpoint that does not have access to as good threat intelligence and generate creates some kind of a loophole, then we all lost, right? We're both trying to defend this customer, and yet we both failed together. So it's really important for the community to understand that threat intelligence is not something to keep close to the vest. It's something to be shared in trusted environments, and that's what we're doing. So th that's one aspect of things. The other aspect that I really like about the uh, Cyber Threat Alliance is the early sharing of uh, findings of threat research. So let's say, for instance, some company discovers that a particular threat actor is up to no good or has developed some sort of uh, a malware that bypasses something. Right? Usually what happens is that that information is shared with all the members of the alliance before the information is made public, well before. Sometimes it's only days because it's really critical and it has to go out. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. So with that information, we kind of feel like we're all armed to make sure that our customers are all protected before the information is public and before a number of threat actors kind of jump in on the opportunity and try to cause some damage before people have a chance to patch. So that's that's really really important and critical in my view in that in that sharing. And one one thing I would add is that it, it kind of feels weird that commercial entities that are there uh, that are in in this for profit on the one hand, of course there are some financials involved, even though we all feel strongly about the mission, which is defending networks against hackers and attackers. There's still a financial aspect. You would feel a little bit strange that why. Why are these people collaborating on something like, like this, especially that not collaborating may give some people an advantage over others? The conclusion is very simple. All these companies have decided that they will compete on products and features and integrations and support and all of that, but they're not going to compete on threat intelligence. That's too vital for the mission to try to have an advantage based just on threat intelligence. And that's something that I really like about this organization. Yeah, I love what I'm hearing you say. One of the words that really stood out to me as you were describing that was community. You even said said it several times as you were describing that. Uh, I believe that very strongly myself, that security is a team sport. I write about that in my book a lot. Like, we, we have to do this together. We have to share information. And it's really interesting to hear you observe that companies have intentionally 
opted to not compete on this part when they could have. Do you think that was like a conscious decision or was did, did people band together? How did we arrive at this really positive state of affairs? I think what happens is that uh, when you're an organization chartered with securing so many customers, networks and environments, you feel the very heavy burden of that uh, of that mission. And like they say, it's very lonely at the top. If you're the only one trying to do this, then you, you just have uh, too many chances for, for failure given the number of threat actors, the resources that they have access to, the rules that they don't play by. It's just too much of an effort for one organization. And I think we have people at the leadership of a lot of these uh, security companies that do understand the the heaviness of, of that burden. And at some point, they just realize that, wait a minute, there's too much information here and not enough resources in one company to just collect, analyze, operationalize all this information. Let's put our efforts together and let's see if we can do a better job at this, especially when you hear about critical infrastructure being targeted. Now, it's, you know, it's, it's no longer like you're not just defending an organization that bought your product. You're defending an entire nation. You're defending a whole community that's dependent on those services. Nobody wants to see a fire department being put down because their 911 call center has been attacked. Nobody wants to see, you know, people going into the dark or going cold because somebody attacked an electrical grid or um, or an oil transport. <laughs> it, it's it's too important for us to focus on just the financial gain out of a transaction. That's just not worth it. Yeah, oh, I love it. I totally agree. So let me pose this question to you that I receive a lot. So when I'm on a stage speaking about ethical hacking or how you know attackers compromise systems or whatever, I very frequently get the question, which is, well, how do you know that these things you're teaching aren't helping the bad guys? And so this, I think the same question could be asked of threat intelligence. How do we know that by providing this intelligence, especially in a community basis, we're not helping the bad guy? And maybe the question should be asked slightly differently. If we are still in the process helping the guy is helping the bad guys is that in fact a problem if we're helping the defenders as well yeah so you are, are we how do we know that we're not helping the bad guy actually i can actually tell you right away that we are helping the bad guys there's no doubt about that there's two two tiers of bad guys that are the top tier who know what they're doing who will have all that information before you publish it anyway. So forget about those. And then you have the bigger lower tier who don't have that information. And yes, it's true, you, you're helping them. But you have to think about the alternative. The alternative is everybody is operating in the dark. That's a way worse situation than shine the light, let everybody has access to the data. And then at least we have a chance of defending against people who do take advantage of that information. And it's a very similar argument you could make about uh, open source software. It's like when, when you're publishing your source code, well, aren't you giving the bad guys a way to find those you know, coding mistakes and those vulnerabilities? Yeah, sure. But at the same time, you're getting tons more eyes on that same software. Chances are the good guys are going to find them before the bad guys. You get to patch it. Now, which outcome would you prefer? I would definitely take the outcome of Shine the light, let everybody know. Let's make sure we're on point for defending what we need to defend. That's, that's my approach. 100%. Music to my ears, I say almost the same. You said it more eloquently than I have ever been able to. So I will be stealing that. I will credit you, but we got to shine the light. <laughs> be my guest. 
because yeah, to your point, right? Let, let's say we did operate in the dark. Well, who has the advantage now? The sophisticated attacker who has the information already. What did we just accomplish? We really didn't accomplish anything. So yeah, information sharing is is pretty cool and pretty important. And, and I don't want to say it's it's an easy thing to 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 grapple with. Honestly, every time I see proof of concept being published about a CVE, I cringe a little bit. I'm like, oh, shoot, no, not again. But then I come back to my senses and I'm like, okay, yeah, all right, maybe that's the right thing to do after all. But it's not an easy thing to to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, it's an unusual, I guess, problem set that we have, right? It's not like cybersecurity is not like other fields. I'm trying to think of what the metaphor would be right now. That's going to be kicking around in my brain for a minute. But the fact that we do have to, I mean, you couldn't say any better than you did already, shine the light on it and let's all benefit and, and take you know, take steps forward from there. So is threat intelligence something that should be entirely outsourced by, should a company entirely outsource it to some other organization? Should it be entirely insourced uh, in-house or should it be some combination? You know, I think we have to be practical in some of these matters. No organization is ever gonna have enough resources to do everything it, it wants to do. And roadmaps and things like that are usually much bigger than what you can accomplish. So it's always going to be a combination of both. I think that some organizations may have the benefit of doing more in-house threat intelligence, especially when it comes to things like what's the best way of building, let's say, honey nets on honeypots? Do you go with something that's outsourced, potentially something that's open, open source? that may actually lead to less valuable data coming back in. So that's the kind of areas where I would say, yeah, do something custom building and build it in-house and craft your own threat intelligence out of that. That usually comes out to be a little bit better, but there's no such a thing as I can do everything. Let's, let's think about email, for example. You know, Email is, I would say, probably the number one vector for uh, initial compromise. And it's extremely difficult to just rely on one threat intelligence source to cover that one vector alone. So you have things like phishing, you have the brand protection, you have BECs. There's so many things going on that you're better off using threat intelligence from multiple sources in order to uh, to cover a decent amount of, of your attack surface. That's one of them. But you know, the, the, there's one aspect of, the, of this question that's a little bit more difficult, which is how do you do that when it comes to private versus government type of distribution? Like, you know, your question could be, if I'm a government organization, am I better off doing threat intelligence on my own or should I outsource it? Or should I even get it from the private sector? Or That becomes a little bit more tricky, right? Because <laughs> we have so, especially in the US, we have so many laws and rules about what can be shared with the government and what cannot makes it a little bit of a, a dicey environment. And, and I have to admit that we've done a much better job at it in the last several years than we have done in the past. When I say several, I'm probably thinking three, four years maybe. Uh, especially the US government has actually stepped up its effort in terms of government and private industry sharing of threat intelligence. They're doing a lot better. Now, there's a lot of things that could be done much, much more and much better than we are doing right now. But I want to applaud the recent changes, right? We have things like attribution, for example, is something that was barely heard of like three, four years ago. But at some point we decided, you know, we're not going to be afraid of attribution. We're not going to wait for that 100% confidence factor. We're just going to call it the way we see it. That has been a welcome change, to be honest. So the government will have 
almost no choice than to outsource some of its threat intelligence. And a lot of it comes from the private industry because the private industry also has its tentacles everywhere, whereas the government may not. You know, we have products deployed, we have telemetry coming in from a lot of these places. The government does not. It has it for, for its own institutions and, and organizations, but not from the private sector. So I think most of the time it's going to be a combination of both just because we're being practical. Now, as we think about the field of threat intelligence as a whole, and you know, here we are, the purpose of the show is think differently. Are there things that are happening, maybe just one thing, doesn't have to be plural, that are happening in threat intelligence where you see most people think that it's X, but really it should be Y. Like what's the big misconception in or about threat intelligence that we should try to correct right now? You know, I, I have one. When people consume threat intelligence, they're usually thinking, and I'm not saying always, but usually thinking about the future. They're like, oh, great. There is this feed here that's going to tell me all these IPs are bad today. Awesome. I'm going to use it. I'm going to block all access to these IPs. What we should be doing instead is understanding how this threat intelligence was put together. Like, you know, when we started the show early on, we were talking about information comes from pre-breach versus post-breach. A lot of it is post-breach. So what you're dealing with is something that already happened in the past. You get information out of it and you're trying to use it for the future. All of that is good. But actually what should happen is you should take that information and use it on your own past. Go back, go back in time, take that fresh threat intelligence that you got and go, did that happen to me? Now, I got to tell you, this usually is done when it comes to those handcrafted threat intelligence report about particular incidents or threat actors with modus operandi. People will go back and check their own, you know, whatever logs that they have, uh, whether it's in a SIM or not. They'll go and check whether they have been uh, breached by any chance. But it does not happen with machine consumable threat intelligence. It's relatively rare that people would say, I'm going to take this feed and apply it to all my connections that happens in the last that happened in the last week. I think that's the mindset that I wish people could kind of switch towards. And uh, that would be so much better used of a lot of the intelligence that's being produced. That's a really interesting insight. Uh, I myself, I'm thinking about it differently. I'm sure everyone listening. So that's, that's great. Well, as our time is coming to a close here, is there any last parting insight or wisdom you want to leave our audience with? Anything I didn't ask you about that I should have? Uh, you know, we're we're kind of living at very interesting times. We have, you know, a number of geopolitical issues going on that kind of spur a lot of activity in cyberspace. So it's it's really one of those times where uh, people people who feel that cybersecurity is a calling now now is like your 15 minutes of fame, <laughs> and uh, now is the time to shine. I think that we need to build a little bit more trust amongst the people working on the good side of this fight. Trust is really is really important. And I'm hoping that we can give a chance to a lot of newcomers into the space as well. I'm thinking about hiring being extremely difficult right now. There's there's so many openings with so few people. It's I, I don't think we're producing enough of uh, you know threat researchers or threat analysts. And that makes it a bit of a problem. So 
I mean, automation obviously is is there to help, but you know, I'm, I'm personally hiring right now, so I'm saying, like, you know, if if you uh, if you happen to stop by RSA this year or or Black Hat, and you know, come and come and talk to me, and and we can think about career plans and that kind of things. But it's really the time where we, as a community of cybersecurity professionals, need to put our put uh, foot forward and and help secure this space that means so much not just for us but for a lot of countries around the world you know my, myself i keep thinking about education for example you know, how much how much did the internet give in terms of access to education to underprivileged countries people who would have never had access to quality education now can just log in and get some quality course online we we can't afford losing that not to somebody who is ddosing a platform or taking all their data as ransom. You know, imagine if some of the online universities get attacked by ransomware, no access to online courses. There's just too much at stake. So it's really a call for action for, for the good guys to step up. I love it. Manir, this has been great. Thank you for all the wisdom and the insight you've shared with us today. It's my pleasure, Ted. Good to be with you too. For everyone who wants to know what Manir is up to or learn more about the show, just head over to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.